Well, howdy, neighbor. It's health and happiness time. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. Thank you there, Brother Bill. That was very interesting. And friends, all I want to tell you is all about the Good Neighbor Get-Together. Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Good Neighbor Get-Together. Come on in and make in seven home. We're family here. So pull up a chair to the table and listen in as we serve up some good old country music and southern hospitality with all the fixings. And don't forget to pass the biscuits. This is the Good Neighbor Get-Together. Thanks for tuning your dial to the Good Neighbor Get-Together, the podcast of the country music pride. Today we're riding shotgun with Diane Diekman, biographer of Marty Robbins and author of the award-winning book, 20th Century Drifter, The Life of Marty Robbins. So of the 47 band members that played with Marty Robbins, Diane was able to speak with the 25 of the 28 that were still living at the time. And during her five years of research for the book, she spoke with almost 100 people. Diane, can you tell us what, what was that like and some of the folks you were able to talk to and some of the stories you came across. It, it was quite a selection, people that I didn't expect that I would ever meet or talk to, like like some of the, the band members. And I had a reunion that I put together, and some of them came to that. The band members that had been there since the beginning, like... like um, um, no, I can't think of his name. Um, Oki Jones was the bus driver and, and he he came and uh, some of the others so it was it was really neat to meet them and the one that I regretted not being able to meet was Bill Johnson who died while I was working on the book and he had been a tremendous help to me and I was really looking forward to to meeting him and and thanking him in person for how much he had helped me uh, do the research on that book. Yeah, it was, it, it, it was such a fascinating book. And I feel like a lot of times you hear people's childhood, you know, their upbringing, and you kind of people kind of force that upbringing into their to their story. But I feel like we really see every, every twist and turn of Marty's life of why it led unto what it what it was, what it was and his output and his genre. So can you can you give us like, Basically, what was that upbringing that that child of the Arizona desert and how that came to like play a role in the type of man he was and the type of music he played? What I discovered, I, I called him a drifter, and that's why the his song title, The 20th Century Drifter, I think it was a semi-autobiographical song because he he was a drifter. Driving a race car is my way of making a living My way of putting the bread on a table at home I'm getting back about half as much as I'm giving And I couldn't make it without a good woman at home 
First place could be just a dream I'm gonna chase it Finishing out of the top ten is nothing but bad And a junker won't ever be first I might as well face it First class equipment is something a man's got to have You might even call me a 20th century drifter 32 weekends I load up the car and I'm gone And my woman cries with Easter black kiss that I give her she prays that come Monday morning I'll be driven home Where my woman And he was always searching for something more. He never felt secure. He grew up on the on the desert. His father was an alcoholic who couldn't keep a job. If he had a job and was doing well, then he would steal something or get into a fight. And they often moved in the middle of the night. He would back the car up to the house at three o'clock in the morning and they'd load it up and, and head out. And uh, the, the, the place where Marty was born was on the desert and his dad often cobbled together homes for them. He'd find abandoned houses and he'd take pieces of them and he'd put something together or, or he'd have like two tents Hmm. and and that's what they lived in and and marty's mom who was pregnant most of the time because she had nine kids had to help build these houses and <laughs> she always had to be ready to to move and so of course they didn't have much money and he and his twin sister talked about how the the, the county would give them new clothes at the beginning of the year, one outfit, and then they'd have to wear that one outfit all year long uh, because that was all they had. You you mentioned right in the preface, it's so sad. It grabbed me right away. I'm going to read that quick paragraph here. You said he never outgrew his father's rejection. Marty was a drifter in the sense of always seeking something and never finding it. That's something was security, acceptance, approval. He was always the little boy wandering the desert, longing for a stable home and a father who loved him. And I think a lot of people can resonate with that. Just, you know, there, a lot of people have strained relationships with their father, but realizing this isn't something he left behind when he was young. He carried this his whole life. Yes, he did. And and I think that's what happens in situations like this when you, you know, like he had an, an alcoholic father who who abused him, who yelled at him and 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 beat him and such, except Marty was pretty quick and he usually escaped. But that was the kind of relationship he had. And when it was similar, when I was writing Farron Young's biography, his dad wasn't physically abusive, but he was cold and, and uh, neither one of them had the approval of their father. And, and I think in those kinds of situations, they, they spend their entire life, because I've heard about this with many other people, they spend their entire life looking for that kind of approval. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was crazy to think that 
I mean, just reading that story I, of of his upbringing and how really crappy it was, and then hearing some of his bandmates, um, just so the listeners can know, there's a YouTube video of the uh, of when the book launched, Diane's book launched at the Country Music Hall of Fame, and a lot of folks stood up and said some anecdotes, and one of them had said. Um, yeah, like most other tour buses back then were full of women and smoke and whiskey. And he's like, it was never like that. He, It was just um, an eternal poker game was the only thing that I remember hearing there. So, but I mean, going back to his story, to Marty's story of his upbringing, when I, when I was reading the book, I envisioned it almost felt like a, uh, like a Woody Guthrie sort of, sort of like shanty town type thing. So so he grew up in the Glendale area of Arizona, and basically, you were saying he basically would have to run town, like hop town, every once in a while when people were coming to collect their debts from the father. And then I forgot, did the father, the the wife, eventually divorced him when he was maybe nine or something like that, or how how did that unfold with his with his yes, upbringing? She, and then she finally high? she finally divorced him. I think Marty was about 12 years old then. And then she and, and her kids who were still at home, um, Marty and his twin sister, Mamie were, were, were the youngest, as I recall. And so they moved into town and, and lived there. And that's when Marty talks about learning the Mexican songs at night and listening to the to the railroad workers and and such that he would uh, be serenaded at night by listening to the Mexican music outside his window. Mm -hmm. And is that is that where we saw that? Is that what we root the his? I guess the when we're talking about the country and and western and gun ballads, his upbringing had to. That's where we sort of get the Tex-Mex vibe as well as the. Um, I think even we that's didn't he go to a school? Didn't he like attend grade school with um what's the name of the the Mexican girl? Um well, Felina? Yeah. Uh-huh. How does that well, unfold? Yes, and that and that was a school they went to. I mean, in, in Phoenix, Arizona, there there were a lot of uh Latinos there. And, and so he grew up with all these kids and and I'm not sure that he ever actually spoke Spanish, but he he was certainly influenced by it, and and he he grew up hearing that music and playing with all those kids. And one of the places, my sister and I went on a research trip out there, and we found the general area where where he was born, where his dad had and and his mom had put together this shack uh, out. Um, just out in the desert and and then there was a place that they had lived uh, downtown Phoenix and, and a, another place like that where he had cobbled a house together and for a while they they lived on uh, a farm and his dad had a good job uh, taking care of the farm and the kids loved living there but but there again something happened and in the in the middle of the night, they have to leave. Oh man, you can you talk about uh, how Gene Autry influenced him? Because I know he used to like he'd spend his evenings watching movies and then walk home in the desert. You know, in spite of the fact that there were rattlesnakes and scorpions, he's just a 
what is he like 10, 11 year old, years old walking right. home in right. the middle of the he, night? On, on, on Saturdays, he would walk to town to, to go to the movies and there were several features, I'm sure. So he would stay there until the movies ended and then he'd walk home at night and he said no matter what was in the desert the the scorpions and all the animals and whatever dangers there might be didn't bother him because he was gene autry um, right at that point walking home from the from the movie and he talked about sitting in the front row of of the theaters and so he could just envision the the smoke rolling over him from the screen. And that was how he got, how much he got into participating. Yeah. For me, it was, I was Luke Skywalker, but, you know, watching Star Wars, but, <laughs> you know, for him, it's Gene Autry, but Gene Autry really had a big influence on him. It wasn't just like me, what, cause I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be able to come a Jedi Knight like Luke Skywalker, but he, this started shaping in him a desire mm -hmm. to be a singer and didn't it so it just wasn't a boyhood uh like this guy on tv i oh. want to be like him no i mean he the the songs he wrote the music he performed and of course he did meet gene in later years and he was always his hero uh, but uh yeah he he admired him and and was a role model and marty followed in his footsteps to a large part was Gene, think, how, how was Gene's response when they met? Was was Gene uh, too cool for, too cool for him, or was he was Marty a pretty big deal at that point? I can't. Re I I think I think I talk in the book that Gene came to Marty's school one day while during World War II while he was in the army, and uh, I I I think he saw him um, at school. But no, Gene was the kind of guy who was always polite and friendly, as far as I know. So uh, I I don't recall when they actually finally met and became acquainted. But right, Marty right. probably was pretty well along in his career at that point. Yeah, I thought I remember hearing that maybe they met and he said, you're my favorite singer. And then Gene said the same thing back to him, like you're my and, favorite and singer. That 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 could be. Yeah. Real quick, while we're talking about influences, can you talk about the influence that Eddie Arnold had? I'm going to read like a part of your book here because I love Eddie, okay. Eddie Arnold, but you, you tell the story. He's sitting in this bar. Eddie Arnold comes on the jukebox and you said Eddie Arnold's many tears uh, came on. Many tears ago said you loved me oh how happy was this heart of mine then a dark cloud came from out of nowhere and the sun went down no more to shine many tears ago i learned to well what it means to bear a heavy load. I found out just what is meant by sorrow. Many tears ago along life's road. Martin memorized the lyrics, replaying the song while he drank, and he said, I had never heard anybody sing with that much feeling and sing so pretty. 
That was the first real country song I liked, and that started me on country music. Eddie Arnold made me like country music. Can you talk about the influence of Eddie Arnold? Well, and, and they became friends later, and, and they were business partners, and Marty got a lot of advice from Eddie about managing finances and investment and all that sort of thing. And everybody knows that Eddie Arnold was pretty successful in mm -hmm. his investments and, and he helped Marty a lot there, but Marty had grown up with a lot of big band music and things like that, that his mother liked, but he hadn't actually listened to country singers uh, until hearing Eddie there and put him on that path. I love that you you also mentioned sort of you know after he's a little bit older and established he ends up really falling in love with Merle Haggard for some reason I'm like really I, I mean I love that I love Marty and I love Merle but I wouldn't really put them together like that. Yeah that was another uh, set I think where they were each other's favorite singers and you know of course Merle Haggard named his son Marty he's he's named for Marty Robbins right right and I think I think Merle would even do um like in Las Vegas um like entire cover sets of Marty Robbins songs and he would like mimic his voice perfectly sort of before he was established but um as far as okay so we've got um Marty's growing up in the desert, Arizona, and he's old. He's old timey because I remember you were saying even his his mom had him singing along to um you know Jimmy Rogers songs. He's listening to Gene Autry. What about the whole gunslinging part and the uh, the um the the potential tall tales of his grandfather who was maybe a Texas uh, ranger. <laughs> I, I think that might have been overdone, that influence, because as I was doing my research, uh, he he died when Marty was only like six years old or something. So I'm, I'm sure he heard a lot of those stories. And of course, he had lots of aunts and uncles. Uh, so he he grew up in that atmosphere. You know, they they didn't necessarily approve of uh of who Marty's mom married and didn't have much time for his dad, but they they were there. They often came to the rescue, the aunts and uncles, when mm. when Marty's mom needed help or didn't have any food to feed her kids. The the aunts and uncles would be there, and and they were cowboys. So Marty got a lot of of that Western aura from them, and and I'm sure a lot of it was his grandfather's stories too. How does he, how did Marty start? Well, tell us actually like what's it, what his real name is. Martin David Robinson. Yeah, and so he he ends up changing it up a little bit. Right, well, and, and actually their name wasn't Robinson. His his dad had had moved to Arizona from Michigan or somewhere, and he changed his name when he went out there and became Johnny Robinson. So that was the, the name that he married as, and, and that's how Marty grew up. And then after he came home from the Navy and from World War II, and he was starting to make it in the music business, then uh, one of his fellow musicians, 
or or he he might have been saying that his name was too long to fit on a record. Martin David Robinson was just too much of a mouthful. And and this other musician says, well, why don't you call yourself Marty Robbins? And he did. It definitely flows better. It yeah, yeah, it's 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 easier. Yes, it is. Yeah. Phonetically, I mean it just it's it works better. Yeah. So did he get married to Marizona before he started his music career? Or did he start that? I can't remember. Did he meet her after? About the same time. He came home from the Navy and, and he was starting into music and, and he was hanging around town and, and he met Marizona. And they got married pretty quickly. And, and so she she was there with him uh, pretty much from the, the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it is first song i'll go on alone uh was he wrote about her after they had a fight we're traveling down two different roads in worlds so far apart you want me yet there's something else before me in your heart you're wanting me to change my life the way you're living yours but i can't change i see no way you want so when we're when we're talking about marty and all the building blocks to like that made him who he was and the output that came out um like you had mentioned he went to the navy and i believe he was stationed in the solomon islands and that's where he really, if I recall, he really started sort of picking the guitar and also got interested in Hawaiian music. And, and he actually ended up recording a, you know, like a Hawaiian style style album. This guy has so many genres, right? Western, like country politan, full on like doo-wop style. Uh, (laughs) What, what genre? I mean, we all know that well, at least today, everyone loves him as the cowboy singer, the gun gunfighter ballads, when he was playing, what what genre did he love, or did he just love what people loved him here and play? Well, he liked doing love songs, and he liked western songs. But as you say, he could do anything, and he tried a lot. He he did several albums of Hawaiian music, and uh, he he tried quite a bit of different things, and and he sounded good in everything that he did and of course in later years when so many singers are chasing the hits then he was trying to write and record things that he thought people wanted to buy but when it came down to his own personal interest he liked the western music and he liked the the love ballads i i always assumed so I just was a casual Marty Robbins fan. I I just Marty Robbins Marty Robbins is the first country singer I ever heard. I remember because my dad he said that um, they lived in California and my my father's father listened to Marty Robbins when they were working on the the big rig trucks. And so my dad still knows every word to every Marty Robbins song. And then so you know it kind of holds a, he holds a special place to me and. Once I got older, I started listening to him, listening to him, and I'm like, I heard, you know, 
what's it like a pink carn white uh pink carnation code and a pink carnation yeah i'm like this sounds like full-on poodle skirt music and doo-wop and and i'm like oh surely he wrote these he did these country music ballads and western songs and then he evolved and sold out but my chron chronology was totally wrong <laughs> so how did the chronology of his his genres unfold well it, it happened as as things came along but but with that mid-50s period and when Elvis Presley came along and the rock and roll, all the country singers were, were doing that stuff, again, trying to sell records. And uh, Marty also, I, I think he got frustrated with, with some of the recording in, in Nashville, and he recorded some of his work in New York City, and that's where the white sport coat and the pink carnation came along because sometimes in Nashville the producers could be a little bit restrictive you know you you sell this song well and that's what we want you to do well they want to try something different and uh, don't always get to so when he did that and, and that was a big hit and then of course he did the the Hal David Burt Bacharach things and and at, at that point here he is singing sounding like a teenager and he didn't want to really sing those songs out in public and advertise who he was singing because he was in his 30s by then yeah. and 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 talking about teenage love you know it just didn't fit <laughs> yeah well and his voice I think was suited for several genres whereas like you know Merle Haggard or Waylon Jennings wouldn't be able to pull that off. His voice was so soft. He could make, he could kind of jump across those genres. What's interesting is in the music industry back then, everybody did that kind of stuff, but you, you didn't necessarily lose your career. Like nowadays, like they, you get pigeonholed into one style. And if you want to experiment, yeah. uh, people don't like that back then. I think people did things like that. They would hop around in different genres, uh, whether they wanted to or not. I'm sure there was pressure from the labels to do it as well. Yeah, they they did do some of that. And sometimes to the extent, like George Jones, of course, he recorded under a different name uh, because they were they were all they were all chasing that teenage rock and roll audience mm -hmm. and uh in the mid uh, 57 uh, time in there. And I know some of the guys and, and fair and young for one, they were later embarrassed to think that they had recorded those, those <laughs> songs, but you know, at, at the time you're, you're trying to stay on the charts. Hey y'all, if you were eating your biscuits and gravy for breakfast this morning and you said to your granny, granny, I sure wish I knew how to play the banjo like old Doc Boggs. Well, then I got some good news for you. We want to tell you about our friend Clifton Hicks. He spent a good deal of time performing, researching, building, and repairing banjos. And with his online courses, he can help you learn to play banjo like one of the greats. So for all your old-timey banjo-picking needs, go see Clifton Hicks at BanjoHeritage.com. You can even use the promo code OVERHAND, that's O-V-E-R-H-A-N-D, for a 20% discount. He's even got one of them there Patreon pages, and for just $5 a month, you can get access to all the banjo tabs, members-only forums, and so much more. Well, what are you waiting for? 
Head on over to BanjoHeritage.com and learn to play the banjo and make your granny proud. You know, I think I remember you saying, like, he closed every show with El Paso, I I believe. Um, The people who were coming to see him when when he was established, was it? I mean, I don't know if you were able to watch full, you know, concerts. Was he going back and forth between a Hawaiian song then a, a gunfighter song and then some like country pop song and then full on Burt Bacharach style music. Or was he trying to like on the road, he's wearing just rhinestones and that's it. No, he, I, I mean, he had so many hit songs that there were a lot of you know, people would want to hear them. So he, he did pretty much his repertoire. I don't recall. I saw him in concert. I don't know, half a dozen times. Oh, no way. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know that uh, he ever, I mean, it wasn't like sets of certain type of music mm-hmm. or anything like Reba McIntyre, she packages her, you know, she'll do his, her 15 minutes of heartbreak songs and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. But Marty didn't, the thing that used to frustrate me about him was his, his, his goofing off. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people liked him being a comedian, I guess. I went to his concerts. I wanted to hear him sing. And he would start singing a song, you know, and I've been enjoying listening to it. And then he'd stop in the middle of the song, tell some kind of joke, cut up, and maybe never go back and finish the song. <laughs> and and that used to frustrate me so because I wanted him to sing a song and not do all that silly stuff but he he liked that you know he thought he needed to entertain people and whether he thought his singing wasn't enough I don't know but you know I'm I'm happy watching somebody like George Strait who just stands up there and sings and that wasn't Marty and that's what I wanted him to be like (laughs) yeah yeah that comes through his personality and I was going to say the same thing he he strikes me as the type that would stop mid song and say, Hey, I'm kind of done with this, or let's move on to another one yep. and never, never miss a beat. And I think part of it probably goes back to still just wanting to be long, to be loved. I think he said once uh, someone asked him if he had everything that he, he'd always wanted. And he said, no, I don't have security yet. He mm-hmm. just, I think he wanted to be secure in being loved probably ultimately by his father who I think had passed by then. So it's it's my understanding. Go ahead. It's my understanding that 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 came out of his desire to be loved by his dad. Yeah, I I I think that's so that's probably where it started, that and the security of growing up, never knowing if you were gonna have a home tomorrow, if you were gonna have to move in the middle of the night. You know, I can't imagine what it would be like to to live that way. But even after he started making money, he he was he was always concerned about that. And, and I mentioned also in the book that, that I came to the conclusion that he, he had to have approval. You know, he was a perfectionist. Everything had to be done correctly. And like you mentioned about how, how well the band behaved on the bus and all that, you know, he, he expected things to be the, the way he wanted them to be. And, and he he wanted people to like him and, and to approve of what he did. So I think he worked really hard to gain that approval and acceptance. Mm-hmm. 
what do you recall like so everyone knows el paso everyone ever i feel like everyone knows the song and even back then they knew it both on the country and the pop charts which which blew my mind i could never imagine that song being on the pop charts but can you tell us um everything you know about that song <laughs> Out in the West Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican girl. Nighttime would find me in Rose's cantina, music would play and Felina would whirl. Blacker than night were the eyes of Felina, wicked and evil while casting a spell. My love was deep for this Mexican maiden I was in love but in vain I could tell One night a wild young cowboy came in Wild as the West Texas wind Dashing and daring a drink he was sharing With wicked Felina, the girl that I love So in anger Challenged his right for the love of this maiden Down put his hand for the gun that he wore My challenge was answered in less than a heartbeat The handsome young stranger lay dead on the floor Out through the back door of roses I ran Out where the horses were tied On its back and away I did ride Just as fast as I could from the West Texas Well, for starters, you talk about it being on the pop charts. The year of 1960 began with El Paso as the number one country song and the number one pop song. <laughs> I doubt if that's ever happened. So uh, what, what the attraction was, I don't really know that made it it's such a pop hit, but he often told the story of how he'd written that song. It it took several years. Every year when they would drive home from Nashville to Phoenix for Christmas, as he was driving through El Paso, he'd see the city limit sign and say, El Paso, that'd be a good title for a song. Mm -hmm. And and then by the time he got to the west edge of El Paso, he forgot about it again. And so it was like the the third year he had done that, then, then the thought popped into his mind out in the West Texas town of El Paso. And, and he started writing that song in his mind. And uh, he, he tells several different versions of the story. I kind of tried to put them together uh, in, in the book, but he said it was like watching a movie and he didn't know how it was going to end. So he was, he was waiting for it to get done. So he knew the ending. And then when they got to Phoenix and then he wrote it all down. And I, I don't know how you'd write a song and hold it in your head until you get someplace you can write it down, especially a long song like that. But <laughs> I, I have heard other, other people do that kind of thing. And, and then he, I, 
he worked on it for a while because I know Jim Glazer told me about when they were on the road after that, they would be practicing the song in the car. They they would be singing it. So uh, he may have fine tuned it, but of course it was it was so long. But once once he got it the way he wanted it and and they recorded it, then he sang it. Somebody asked him once like in 1981 how many times he thought he'd sung El Paso and he said how many shows have I done since I recorded it that's how many times I've sung it so mm -hmm. he that was that was always his final songs at, and every concert he did so he he never got tired of singing it did they did they shorten it for radio did they cut a line out uh, they, they did initially when they they released it and and i have compared the different versions to know what which uh verse was taken out uh, but it, the song became so popular and nobody minded it being so long <laughs> so yeah i think it was only on the original mono version that it had the shorter version because then when they reissued it and every time they've reissued it since then uh it's always been the longer version yeah That's to me to me it's the perfect song like the melody is incredible like it sticks in your head it has that flowy yeah, kind of feel so you got this flowing melody which marries with the story so you get sucked in and you're like i want to know what's going to happen to this guy yeah. and i mean you are committed and so the, the melody kind of carries you and you don't realize it's over four minutes long because no. you're invested in this story. relationship if you will and you want to know what happens so every time i like the first time i heard it i had an image in my head i pictured it you know and it's the same image every time I hear it. There's this bar in the desert. There's this girl. These guys are going to kill him. It's the same story and same image in my head every single time. And and it's a waltz, and that's what part of what makes it flow so well. And yeah. I like waltzes, but it's 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 a really pretty waltz. And you know, quite a few of his his western songs he did as waltzes, and it it does. It seems to kind of add to the flow of telling a story to have it in waltz time. Mm -hmm. I feel Wasn't like it? Oh, go ahead, Jason. Sorry. When I, I've honestly always I've always thought even since I didn't even really like country that much when I was younger, I always thought Marty Robbins might be the best songwriter ever. Like these stories, they are little, they're like miniature movies. And they are you actually, you really get hooked in. It's not just, Oh, I like this beat. I like this chorus. It's truly stories are like, this is amazing. And I, I remember um, a few weeks ago, I was, you know, she, my wife listens to not country music. And so I put the put this song on and other other Marty songs, and I I'm like I'm gonna do the test. And sure enough, she was like glued. You can't help but listening to these stories. And and I mean, even if his voice wasn't Velvet Glory, just the story alone would be amazing. <laughs> but then those, I don't know if it's nylon strings. Um, but man, this guy is so good. So my question for you is, did he know that he was an amazing songwriter? And what did others think of him? Like his contemporaries who, like in the industry. He sometimes got frustrated that people didn't record his songs. 
But what he didn't realize is that they thought nobody can sing a Marty Robbins song yeah. like Marty Robbins. And they were afraid they couldn't do it justice to record his songs. Mm -hmm. And and he thought, well, why don't they want to record my songs? And mm -hmm. he he didn't seem to realize that he was in a class by himself. If mm -hmm. Marty Robbins sings a song, how can you do better than that? Yeah. Wasn't uh, El Paso the first Grammy uh, awarded to a country song? Well, they, they changed the name. The, the, the first one uh, um, went to uh, Tom Dooley and the Kingston Trio. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, then, then his would have been the, the next, but they, they, um, the, the, the title of the award changed the the okay. first several times and and that first grammy uh he said they mailed it to him they there was no presentation and and <laughs> and i think he said they misspelled his name or something i don't remember oh, wow. <laughs> but you know they they didn't put much stock the the grammy organization didn't didn't think it was that big a deal to give an award like that yeah, I so when he was playing, you know, every night ending with El Paso, uh, I saw a video of him because I guess it, they would cut cut it off at midnight, and he would purposely play beyond midnight. And sometimes they had a clock in the room that you would like turn the handle well, back to like eleven thirty. Yeah, yeah, or the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he always liked to do the the last eleven thirty show because he he raced at the fairground speedway. So many nights he would go to the fairground speedway and do the race, and and then he he rushed to the Ryman Auditorium to to play the Opry, and and that was the that was one of the reasons why he liked doing the late show. But yeah, that that became a tradition, and and he would make a joke of changing the the clock on stage and that sort of oh. thing to everybody would laugh and because when when the opera went off at midnight then the Ernest Tubb Jamboree down the street on Broadway uh, came came on WSM at midnight and Ernest Tubb couldn't start his show because Marty <laughs> was still doing the Opry and WSM didn't cut him off uh, um, apparently at midnight they let him finish his show, so then Ernest Tubb had to wait to to get airtime. Yeah, nobody cuts off nobody cuts off Marty Robbins. No, I know I I know there's covers. I know Johnny Cash did some, a Marty song like in some of his later stuff. Coulter Wall um, does an awesome version of uh, Big Iron, and didn't Elvis do a Marty Robbins song? Do you recall? Oh, oh yes. Uh, you gave me a mountain. There's, there's quite a story to to that one. Uh, Marty wrote that, and the first person to record it was Frankie Lane, and Marty wrote it kind of semi autobiographical. It talks about despised and disliked by my father is a line in the song, and. Uh, Frankie Lane said, "No, I, I can't, I can't sing a song, a line like despised and disliked by my father." So, so what did he call it? Uh, something about, I think, deprived of the love of a father is the way he does the line. And Elvis recorded that song, so that was one of Elvis's better known songs. You, you gave me a mountain, and then uh, 
Johnny Bush recorded it. And when I interviewed Johnny Bush, I asked him if he knew about the original line. And he said, no, he didn't. That Frankie Lane version was the only one he'd heard. But if you listen to Marty Robbins sing that song, he will say, despised and disliked by my father. Mm -hmm. um, I That guitar is so amazing. Now, is that... Is that Marty playing or is that uh, Grady Martin? And 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 as we're talking about Grady Martin, can you talk about um, the um, the the shift in music stuff when the album or when the song "Don't Worry" comes out? The 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 fuzz tone invention. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and I've I've talked to several of the the band members about that also, and it and it, it seems to be that that there was a a blown amp or fuse in Grady Martin's amp, and they they didn't hear that until they played back the song. liked that song they they liked that tone so they left it in there and then of course what the the show the road shows have to sound like the record and that was one of the things marty insisted on because of that quality he wanted people to to know it sounded like the record so um jack pruitt that's who i couldn't think of, of earlier was uh, uh jack pruitt um uh, the lead player and Bill Johnson, the steel player, then they came up with a with a, a few things that to to make that sound. One of them was for Bill to reach over and and tickle Jack's amp when he played that. Well, Jack didn't like that, so didn't <laughs> like him messing with that. So that didn't last very long. So, um, uh, but then then uh, several companies started manufacturing these fuzz tone boxes and bill johnson put that on his steel and then he could make the fuzz tone for that and i know it's it's become a very popular rock and roll um, item and i i've never heard that it originated any place other than marty although that's not where the credit goes, so I don't know if somebody else came up with it about the same time, but the the definitive place where we know it happened was on that session. So can we, uh, can you tell us a little bit about like how he got into racing? Because you mentioned it earlier. I know on Saturday nights, he'd race from 8 to 10 p.m., which is crazy, finish, take a shower, and then go hit the stage. So, I mean, to think that someone as famous and well-known as he was is out there riding race cars and then like trying to get to the, uh, you know, to the concert is just wild to me. Who does that? <laughs> Marty Robbins does, yeah. does that. Well, he, he'd always liked racing and he, he, he was a fast driver. So, I mean, he liked to drive period. 
Um, so, you know, back back in the day uh, when he was still in Phoenix, he he would go to races. I don't recall if he actually I don't think he had a car then because he couldn't have afforded that. So he did his racing on the way back to Glendale from when he was leaving the, the station in Phoenix at night and driving down Grand Avenue heading home. That's that was when he did his racing. But then after he moved to Nashville, then he got into the the the, the smaller race cars, midgets, I think, that were his first ones. And then he progressed and he started racing at the fairgrounds raceway in about about 60, 65, something in there. And uh, then uh, NASCAR came to fairgrounds raceway they apparently they occasionally had nascar races there and then he got into running nascar and it it got to a point later he 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 was good enough that he was competitive um, as a nascar driver and it, it he had this quandary about his his first job was was a, as a, a singer and a musician and that's how he made his money and that's what he needed to focus on but he loved racing and and it was hard to do both of them so for a while he stopped racing and of course his heart attack kind of played into that as to why he shouldn't be out driving a race car but he couldn't take not racing and he bought another car and he got back into it again and and he he did a, a race only a few months before his last heart attack. So it was it was it was a passion and he he tried to to fight it, but he just loved racing. And he actually raced with I mean he raced with well known people like Richard Petty and Kel Yarbrough. Yeah. Like I, I grew up in the weekends going to the dirt tracks and watching races. Kel Yarbrough was my favorite. So you know, NASCAR has been in my family forever. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he actually raced with like top uh, racers is crazy. Oh, he, and then he'd he go do a show. And and he, he bought their cars from him. You know, he's good friends with Bobby Allison. I interviewed Bobby Allison for the book. And uh, um, Richard. Um, Richard Petty. Petty. No, uh, yeah, well, he wouldn't talk to me. I tried interviewing him, but he didn't want to talk to me um <laughs> i'm trying to think of the the other one who was a car owner um also but but most of those those people marty was good friends with all of them and one of the things that i think would have been so neat is when he went for the race weekends like one of the guys told me they were at the the racetrack in texas and they were all staying at the hotel there and uh Marty Robbins would come down to the pool with his guitar and he'd sit there and give a concert. Can you imagine staying in a hotel and there's Marty Robbins comes out to the pool and does a concert? Yeah, awesome. <laughs> I know you had in the book somewhere you I try to remember this right, but I remember reading this and thinking it was just so funny and quirky and cool. But something like Marty, I think, tried to try to start a racetrack in Nashville, or maybe there was already one there, but he ended up opening like 
uh, opening a, a cantina there and called it Rosa's Cantina. <laughs> Do you remember yeah, that? He, Is that right? He he did uh, at at the track, and I I can't remember which track or what story what what track it was or what the story was behind it. But for a while, yeah, he he did have a a, a Rosa's Cantina at, at the track. <laughs> and you know the Rosa's Cantina that that reminds me in El Paso they have a Rose's Cantina and they always talk like Marty talked about it in his song well no he did not and I have emailed those people and given him Marty Robbins quotes that he made up <laughs> the name Ro Rose's Cantina he'd never heard of it he made it up for the song and and it somebody had done some research and then they they told him later that there had been a Rose's Cantina at one time in El Paso in the 1800s. And Marty said, oh, okay, well, he didn't know that, you know, because he just made it up. But now um, that's Rose's Cantina's claim to fame. They, they <laughs> always advertise themselves as we are who Marty wrote that song about. And no, they got it backwards. They, <laughs> they're, they're trading, they named that to trade on <laughs> the fame of that name from the song that Marty wrote. Their tacos better be good. They're going to try to claim that name. Yeah, well, they they have, and most people don't know any better. They just take it at face value. About oh, this is where what Marty wrote the yeah. song about. This is the this is the stool he sat at in the bar. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is where he first Pro saw probably her. So. This is where he wrote Mar it. Marty Robbins ate here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there was a racing story I heard where because he would race like eight to 10 and then have to be, you know, at the Opry that one night he was winning and was like, you know, was was going to win. But but looked I don't know if you looked at his watch and realized, like, I got a concert to do, so I can't finish the race. I got to pull out. And then he got there and the people there was some sound issue or the people before him hadn't done. And so he could have stayed and actually won the race. But he showed up and mm -hmm. had to sit around for 30 and minutes. I I think that might be where he started the thing about going over. Okay. I, I think that's the story that led to that. Mm -hmm. That after that, he says, well, if they're not going to be ready for me, then I'll just stay here and do my show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you, when we're talking about Marty Robbins, I, you probably talk to a lot of people about Marty Robbins. And for me, it's just, I know him in my context of growing up and hearing him and loving the, you know, the Western ballads and then my dad, and then um, still listening. And I wore Marty Robbins shirt a few days ago and two people said, hey, and, and in Hawaii, and they said, hey, cool shirt. What, I know part of what you wanna do, Diane, is you want to keep, um, you don't wanna allow these folks to be forgotten, like Farron Young, right. Marty Robbins. And, and in a moment, we'll talk about your Randy Travis um, book that you're working on. When you talk to people, or even as you survey the land, do do the masses still know who Marty Robbins is? Are folks still listening to him? Is he slowly being forgotten, or is there a renaissance of him, or has he never really gone away? Or it, well, it it depends on what audience I'm in, I guess. But you know, of course, the question I also often get asked is, "What books have you written?" And, and then I'll say. Have you heard of Marty Robbins and Farron Young? And most people uh, 
say yes, and I guess younger people would probably say no, they haven't, but uh, they are. And, and, and of course, I, I listen to the several the radio stations like like Willie's Place on XM and and uh, they they play Farron and Marty songs, but um, I I couldn't really say what I I'll just say this: they're not being forgotten by the people who already knew who they were. Mm. But th for a new generation to learn about them, you have to have some kind of connection with the older music, and 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 of course with Marty when he got into NASCAR, that opened a new world because in all those people, although a lot of them were country people to begin with, if they hadn't heard of him then, well, they they did after that. Uh, and well, but all those people are retired now too. <laughs> yeah. Are you familiar with uh, Breaking Bad, the AMC show, have you is, heard about is, it? Is that the one that used Big Iron in it? Uh, they may have, but in the finale, it was five or six years ago. In the finale, El Paso comes on. When oh, someone... it was El because yeah. I I remember, and I think I I mentioned something in in my newsletter about it that there was some some I knew something about Breaking Bad, but I couldn't remember what the connection yeah. was. And I think that opened up uh, that kind of put him back in the spotlight again because it was such mm -hmm. a big show, the finale, yeah, and everyone is like, "What is this song?" Who, if you didn't know who Marty Robbins was, you hear it. And like you mentioned, the waltz it pulls you in immediately. And I think there was a resurgence it's, six or seven years ago, whenever the finale was, okay. and people like, "Who is?" Because every I remember look because I looked it up. I just remember looking up and it's like, I want to see what they're saying about this Marty Robbins song. And like so many articles were like, you know, Marty Robbins song ends mm -hmm. up in the finale, which was an anagram for Felina. So they're wow. making all these connections of you know, same letters. It spells finale. It spells Felina. So it kind of put Marty back there in culture again. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. I think, uh, I may have heard it in an interview you did, or I can't remember where, where it was, but didn't he, uh, oh, Richard Childress or something, didn't he like almost wreck somebody on the, on the, he, he almost smashed into somebody on the racetrack? That, that, that was the other person I was trying to, to think of. It wasn't okay. Richard Petty, it was okay. Richard Childress. So yes, uh, Richard was driving that day and uh, when they, they spun out on the track and Marty was headed right for him and he took the wall mm -hmm. and I interviewed Richard for the book. And that's what he told me that he, he owes his life to Marty Robbins. Cause you know, if, if Marty hadn't taken that wall, he just smashed into his driver's door mm -hmm. and, and uh, Marty did get injured, but that wasn't, uh, that wasn't his worst injury. I don't think, but uh, yeah, Mar Marty hit the wall to avoid hitting Richard Childress. Yeah. Do you think, um, is there, you know, when you, when you survey a life and you do a retrospect, I feel like, I feel like everyone's got sort of skeletons in their closet and everyone, we're all sort of, you know, carry around good and bad stuff. Um, and so I'm curious, what what do do his his the his family who survived him how do they 
how did they view the book and how, how did they view him? Was he, um, you know, we don't got to do any crazy drama, but I'm just curious at a high level, how, how are their thoughts of their, of, you know, of Marty? Well, I interviewed both uh, Ronnie and Janet for the book at the end. I, I had the book pretty much written before I got in touch with them, but they did give me some stories to, to add in. And he, he was their dad and you know, Ronnie toured with him for a while and uh, Ronnie and I didn't talk about that, but I, 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 I think that was a, in my opinion, a disservice that Marty tried to make him Marty Robbins Jr. Didn't he bill him as that name? Yes. Too? Yes, he, he did. Ronnie is a great singer and the songs that he put out really sound good, but his his career didn't go anywhere. And uh, uh, I I personally think it was a bit of heavy handedness from from his dad. But then I I don't know how how much Marty wanted him to have a career either because. Marty is the kind of guy that doesn't want to be upstaged. So I I don't know how all that works out, but but Ronnie is a great singer and and Janet is is a pianist and her her dad would not let her have a music career because she's a girl and he didn't want her in the music business. Mm -hmm. So she she has since become um, an an artist and and she plays uh, piano. You know the classical type mm -hmm. piano but no they um as best i could tell they they just had a a, a normal childhood a happy oh, childhood with parents who loved them and took care of them yeah and ronnie ended up he had <clears throat> i don't know three or four top 100 hits maybe one in this the thing was mm -hmm. it those you love uh I think that was the name of it. it got up to like in the 60s or something didn't make it to number one or anything but he and, had and they did a song. couple duets too and and you know he he's he sounds sounded really good and, and after marty died then ronnie took his band out on the road for a while took mm. marty's band out and and maybe fulfilling some of their gigs i don't know but it it just it it didn't go very far so i don't know what the situation was there yeah can we talk about like his marriage to Marizona, which is like the greatest name? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And like they see the impression I get, unless I don't, I don't know any of the details, is that they were just in love with each other. Like when you see her do interviews, her face just beams when she talks mm -hmm. about him. Uh, yeah, I, tell I, us about their marriage. I, I think it was really a, a it was a a true love story, and. Um, they they did have problems in the in the earlier years like i when i i mentioned when he wrote i'll go on alone mm -hmm. but she got really religious and he was not at all religious and i guess that was one of their their big sticking points and and marty finally came around to letting her have that and and supporting her in doing that so so uh, he he gave her what she wanted. He he kept her out of the music business. 
Mm. For for whatever reason, he never talked about his family. He never talked about her. None of the band members ever met Marizona. Mm. Um, he he kept Janet and Marizona at home away from the music business and Ronnie because he was getting into the music business you know he he was allowed to participate but Marty considered it not a place for women and he kept them away from it yeah because uh I guess Marizona became a Christian early in their marriage and so that was right, part of right that. she she was uh super religious all the time and and at at some point they they bought a building and turned it into a church and uh so that that was what she did so you know so so she had something to keep her busy while he was on the road mm -hmm. so you know they i think it was one of those situations where they both had their own interests but they were happy to see each other again yeah. you know, they yeah. were yeah, well, because he ended up writing the, the Master's Call, which was like maybe one of four songs off the Gunfighter Ballad album that he actually wrote. When I was but a young man, I was wild and full of fire. A youth within my teens, but full of challenge and desire. I ran away from home and left my mother and my dad. I know it grieved them so to think their only boy was bad. I fell in with an outlaw band, their names were known quite well. How many times we robbed and plundered, I could never tell. This kind of sinful living leads only to a fall. I learned that much and more the night I heard my master call. One night we rustled kettle, a thousand headers so Which is the whole song about uh the lord you know, jesus wow. calling this person and then responding so it's it's pretty remarkable when you read the lyrics it, it sounds like he himself had a salvation experience well he he did and he became at at i think at the beginning he didn't want her focusing on religion and expecting him to live the way she was living but they they came but he he did all always have his his own spiritual thing. But the master's call, that's an interesting story too, because um, in, in there is a line called a, a miracle performed that night. Mm -hmm. And when Marty first recorded that song, he, he misspoke and he said a miracle preformed that night had a reason life is his to take or give a miracle preformed that night i wasn't meant to die the dead ones formed a barricade at least six or seven high and he would not allow that song to be released as, as a single because there was an error in it yeah. so that's that's another song that i listened to if if I hear it played and it, he says a miracle preformed that night, I know that was the original. If it mm -hmm. says there's a miracle performed that night, then I know that's that's the approved version by him because it doesn't have a mistake in it. Yeah. That song is so good. That's another one of those. I mean, it's it's almost cheesy because we live in 2023 in this scenario of two bolts of lightning coming down and all this, you know, all this stuff. But man, when you listen to that song, that is a, that is such a story. It, I mean, that could be even now that could be like a scene from a movie. And when I hear that, I get like, I actually get the chills. I'm like, what? A, just 
the the cadence and the deliverance he gives us on that song is un, is unreal and i'm still surprised that all of his contemporaries weren't saying marty robbins is uh the best songwriter there's ever been i just i don't know how i tr i'm not just saying it because this is our like i've 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 always thought man this guy's the best this guy's the best but anyways um do you know are there are there any um like what what are some points of connection that if, if folks are interested in marty robbins right now they want to nerd out can they go to the country music hall of fame and see something can they see you know, can they see his house? Can they somewhere? Can they see where he wrote? Well, we know he can't go to Rose's Cantina and see um, <laughs> that no. Rose's Cantina. Or, or do we know where his little guitar is or anything like that? I I don't know what happened. They they had a, a museum display at the Opry. And, mm -hmm. and then when the flood came through, I've not been back to to see if that was rebuilt but i know they had his car there and they had some of his possessions and i think i've asked ronnie that question and hadn't got an answer so i i don't know if there is anything on display uh there there used to be a museum in phoenix that moved to wilcox arizona and I'm not sure if that's still there or not. Got you. We've been talking with Diane Diekman, author of the award-winning 20th Century Drifter, The Life of Marty Robbins. Um, such a such a fun book. And we want to encourage our listeners to go to dianediekman.com where um, we they, folks could learn more about that book, your fair and young book. And you have a pretty awesome sort of weekly roundup email blast that goes out that folks could sign up there, which is pretty, pretty cool. Um, at, before we jump off, I would love to hear about um, Randy Travis. I've always been intrigued with that guy and don't really, you know, I feel like he wasn't at least so I'm 43 years old. He wasn't necessarily like a mega star, but, you know, everyone sort of knew three wooden crosses and just a few other. And I just. I've always heard some things off and on like and I'm like okay this is an interesting subject to hear about um as we close off I know you're still working on that but what what can you tell us about that project or even just a little little kiss on the cheek about old Randy Travis Randy Travis does have quite a story to tell he started out as a juvenile delinquent in North Carolina and he met Lib Hatcher, who thought he could be a famous singing star. And the two of them together moved to Nashville and they they worked for years. They worked really hard. And he he did become a, a famous singing star. And uh, the I don't too young for you to remember, but in the I think it was 90, he was the highest grossing country singer uh, of of all. And oh, wow. so he he was he was way at the top he's the one who started using the 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 tv screens uh, on uh, uh i and i can't think of the what that's that's called anymore but uh instead of just watching people on the stage you could see him up on the tv oh, screen oh nice and he was one of the first country singers to do that and and then uh, he he had a resurgence when Three Wooden Crosses came out. And then, of course, in 2013, he had uh, 
cardiomyopathy and a stroke. So uh, since then he's been in a wheelchair and he can't talk very well, but it's, it took like three years of rehab and such uh, to get him as, as well as he is now. And then in, in 2016, he was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. And the amazing thing about that is, you know, like I said, he didn't talk, so he, he didn't sing. And the night of his induction, he, he sang Amazing Grace. And none of us had heard him talk even because Mary did the talking for him. And, and he sang that song. And what I'm learning in my research is that was one of the things they did in 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 rehab they worked on that song because although the 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 brain damage has affected his speech and things like that a, a song is memorization yeah. and, and so yeah. you can memorize something if you do it keep doing it over and over so he sang that song and and somebody there you know there there wasn't a dry in the house because every everybody was shocked and you know, you everybody was was hoping that someday Randy would talk again, and here he was singing a whole song. It, it, I, I mean, I watched it on on the internet, but it blew everybody away. So awesome! Well, thank you so much. We're we'll, looking forward to that, Diane Diekman, Everybody, thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Hey y'all, this is the Reverend Magnus. I want to say thanks again for listening to the Good Neighbor Get Together. Would you do us a favor and tell your friends and neighbors about our little podcast? We'd appreciate it. I want to tell you once again that Jesus loves you. Marty Robbins sang in his song, The Master's Call. He said, A pardon I was granted, my sinful soul set free. No more to fear the angry waves upon life's stormy sea. Forgiven by the love of God, a love that will remain. I gave my life and soul the night the Savior called my name. Jesus is calling your name. Will you answer the Master's call? All you have to do is trust in Him, cry out to Him, ask Him to forgive you. He loves you. I hope you know that. Will you answer the Master's call? I hope you do.